Well, greetings and hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. This is Stuart Haynes. iFormerX is an online community of practice for ambulatory care and community pharmacists. Our mission is to empower practitioners to apply the best evidence to patient care decisions. Now, while evidence from research studies is, is clearly important to make well-informed decisions, a great clinician takes into consideration a number of factors, not just the results of randomized controlled trials. Indeed, patient-specific factors like values and preferences, insurance coverage, and beliefs about medications are also critically important. And institutional factors, such as formularies, product availability, personnel expertise, and access to specialists and specialty services also must be considered. Now, this year, we've been experimenting with a new educational series that we call Complex Patient Cases. And the cases are based on real patients, but of course, no protected health information will actually be shared during the podcast. The essential features and facts of the case will be described by an ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident, and we've invited a panel of experts to discuss the case with us. So today's complex patient case was developed by Dr. Sabrina Silvera, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Megan Scalia, a clinical pharmacy specialist with Lifespans Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. And the case, as you'll learn, involves an older gentleman who's experiencing dry mouth that he attributes to one of his antihypertensive medications. But we'll get into that in a moment. Sabrina, Megan, welcome. It's, it's great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast as first-time contributors. Thank you for having me, Stuart. I look forward to the discussion. Yeah, agree. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the discussion. And now to our expert panelists, Dr. Eric McLaughlin and Joseph Sassine. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with Dr. McLaughlin and Dr. Sassine as have been frequent contributors to iFormerX and have given numerous presentations at national pharmacy and, and medical conferences. Dr. McLaughlin is professor and chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the Jerry Hodge School of Pharmacy, Texas Tech. University Health Science Center and is based out of Amarillo, Texas. And Dr. Sassine is Professor and Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in Aurora, Colorado. Eric and Joe have actively managed thousands of patients with hypertension during their careers and have served on guideline panels and are co-authors of the hypertension chapter in Depiro's pharmacotherapy. So Eric, Joe, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast today. Hey, thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. Thank you, Stuart. I'm energized and looking forward to this. So Sabrina, why don't you get us started by introducing the case? So the clinic Megan and I practice at is a community health center in an urban area of Rhode Island where patients are seen for both primary care and specialty medicine. Our patient, JT, the 67-year-old black male, was referred by his PCP to our ambulatory care pharmacy service for hypertension management. He presented in the clinic feeling well overall and motivated to get his blood pressure under control. He denied any symptoms related to hypertension, including fatigue or lower extremity swelling, but he endorsed occasional headaches that generally last for a few days and some occasional dizziness. 
He stated that he experiences dry mouth pretty persistently, which he believes is caused by one of his medications. This was his chief complaint when he presented to our service, stating that my medication is making my mouth dry. I want to stop it. He also noted that he frequently sweats, but believes this may be due to his prostate cancer treatment. Of note, JT admitted to consuming foods high in sodium content, but is aware that salt is not good for his blood pressure. His diet is generally unhealthy and full of convenience foods and prepared meals, such as having takeout for dinner with pizza and Chinese food. He denies smoking cigarettes, chewing tobacco, or drinking alcohol. JT also reported not being physically active other than attending physical therapy weekly and doing chores around his house. His past medical history is significant for stroke at age 64 with mild residual left-sided weakness, prediabetes, GERD, AFib, prostate cancer, anxiety, depression, dyslipidemia, and hypertension, the focus of our visit today. And despite being on several antihypertensive medications, JT's blood pressure remains elevated. At the visit, his blood pressure was initially 143 over 87, and the repeat measurement was 138 over 81. He measures his blood pressure at home and brought his log to the clinic for review as well. He endorses 100% adherence to his medications while attributing the dry mouth he's experiencing to his clonidine. And the symptoms began soon after he started taking the medication, and it worsened when the dose was increased. For his current medications, JT is taking abiraterone or Zytiga, acetaminophen, and lodipine 5 mg daily, atorvastatin, cetirazine, citalopram, quantidine 0.3 mg, by mouth twice daily, flonase, hydrochlorothiazide 25 mg once daily, Losartan 100 mg daily, metoprolol tartrate 100 mg twice daily, pantoprazole, prednisone, and warfarin. So JT has a pretty complex medical history as well as an extensive medication list. He's also at high risk for drug-drug interactions. So I'm wondering what your initial thoughts are. Are there any additional pieces of information I should obtain or questions that I should ask our patient? I guess I can go first. I guess one of the first questions that that come to my mind is looking at adherence. Blood pressure meds don't work if patients don't take it. So if we done either direct or indirect measures of adherence, and from your opinion and your interactions with the patient, do you think he's adherent with his regimen? At the time of our visit, I did think he was adherent to his regimen. We checked his dispense history, which was consistent as well as talking with the patient who then described that he uses pill organizers to make sure that he takes his medication at the right time each day. Yeah, I definitely always want to ask about adherence in a patient like this who clearly meets the definition for resistant hypertension. Two things in this population that I always think about in addition to objective measurements of adherence is really compliance with lifestyle modifications and previous history of other antihypertensives. So it does seem like there's some opportunity to improve his lifestyle. So I'm wondering, did that come up in discussion? Any specific targets for lifestyle? We spoke in depth about lifestyle modifications. So for example, this patient was motivated to get a bike and try exercising that way. We had a goal of maybe 30 minutes, a couple days a week. I also focused a lot with diet. So salt being a major factor 
this patient enjoys hot dogs and eats a lot of them. So we would really focus on, okay, how can we limit this? Do you really need the relish? So we would focus on things like that as well to try to help limit that salt intake. One of the questions that I, I think about also with, you know, any patient really comes in with elevated blood pressure is the data that you're basing a decision on is really only going to be good as the, the data that you get. So, you know, we've got blood pressure elevation in the clinic that were elevated. Did you all do these? What was the technique? Was appropriate technique and and adherence to AHA standard measurements used? And then likewise, thinking about these blood pressure measurements he's bringing from home, does he have a validated monitor? Was he taught on its use and those types of things? Almost like when we do clinical studies, garbage in is garbage out. Unfortunately, our blood pressure measurement technique is less than desired often telling a normal clinical practice. In clinic, the blood pressure is first taken by a medical assistant who has been trained in taking blood pressure properly. His repeat blood pressure measurements were then taken by a pharmacist who was also educated in proper blood pressure technique. And so we do follow the AHA standards when taking a patient's blood pressure. And so despite not doing repeat measures in clinic to ensure that there are no discrepancies, we did see that his blood pressure was elevated even upon repeat with his initial being 143 over 87 and repeat 138 over 81. So this patient was educated a couple of different times on the proper technique of taking blood pressure at home, like urinating before checking his blood pressure, making sure he's sitting in a seat where his back is supported. He kind of needed reminders, but overall the technique was appropriate. His home blood pressure readings were also very high with his systolic ranging from 133 to 150 and his diastolic ranging from 77 to 96 over the past month, even after being educated on proper technique. One thing I do want to learn about is his just some basic laboratory parameters. So as far as looking at a basic chemistry panel and markers of kidney function, serum potassium and liver function, were all those normal? Generally, his lab results were normal. Um, he did have an elevated ALT of 50, which is only slightly elevated. His blood glucose, unfortunately, was also elevated at 120, with his A1C also being 5.9%. So he did have some elevated markers in his laboratory results. And with his medication regimen, including an oncology drug, abiraterone, um, was his potassium normal? His potassium was 3.6. Okay, so maybe the lower end of the normal range. Which, which gives me a little bit of insight to maybe some of the concerns that I have. I am not an oncology expert. But when I see a drug that I'm not familiar with, I have to look at basic information. And there may be some concerns about that in combination with prednisone, perhaps exacerbating his hypertension, though um, realizing that I'm not an oncologist and I would not want to change oncology treatment in somebody with active cancer. I think it's important for me as a pharmacist to realize what might be potential complications but, and maybe find workarounds. I, I too am not in the oncology field at all, but did you look at potentially drug-induced causes of blood pressure here and, and can this agent increase blood pressure? Yes, that was something that we had discussed. Um, when looking at his medication list, the abiraterone and prednisone are potential medications that will increase the patient's blood pressure. However, in this case, the benefits outweigh the risks in treating patients prostate cancer, so we have had to have these medications continued which is why he is on so many different medications for his blood pressure. One question I had for you both is that 
since I haven't worked with clonidine a lot, I'm wondering how common dry mouth is with clonidine. And if it's pretty common, what are the best strategies to prevent it from occurring? And if it occurs, how do we manage it? That's a great question. It's a step back in time when we used to use more clonidine. Clonidine has fallen out of favor. I think it's very plausible, if not definitive, that the dry mouth and any kind of anticholinergic related side effects that he's reporting are related to the clonidine. The dose is not a starting dose, so it, I'm assuming it's probably titrated up to this 0.3 milligrams twice daily, or normally start at 0.1 milligrams twice daily. Uh, when I say fallen out of favor, one thing that I sort of commented on earlier is this patient does meet the definition of resistant hypertension just based on on what he's on, and maybe there's some wiggle room to to fully exploit some of the other medicines. But he's on five medicines right now, his fifth most likely being the addition of clonidine. I'm going to some of our reference materials from the American Heart Association. They published a pretty extensive scientific statement on the management of resistant hypertension in 2018. And they made a statement about clonidine that I think a lot of clinicians probably don't really realize. They don't endorse the use of clonidine. They even are bold enough to state when you are considering clonidine to use the transdermal form. Uh, I mentioned that it's in, in an effort to just inform like everybody that probably clonidine should be last on the list and when it is used, maybe to use the transdermal form. I'm not too much of a fan of the drug in general because it does have some rebound hypertension associated with it. The transdermal form, like any transdermal formulation of the medicine, may mitigate some of the side effects to the point where maybe the mouth is less dry, but I'm not sure. I, th I think you're maybe better off thinking what are some other options beyond using clonidine and maybe an alternative to clonidine. I, I would agree with Joe's comments. I am not a fan of clonidine, and unfortunately, we still see a lot of use. And unfortunately, it's most of the tablets. I, I don't see, at least in here in West Texas, not much of the patch form, even though we do see significant resistant hypertension, there are a lot better options, I think, that we could consider. And as Joe alluded to, I think there's some other dose adjustments and other tweaks that we could consider making in this patient's regimen before we kind of go down uh, the path of a, of a centrally acting agent. So instead of clonidine, I'm wondering if it might be better to try using spironolactone or maybe hydralazine for the blood pressure control? What do you guys think? The first thing I would think of is spironolactone is often our go-to agent for patients with resistant hypertension. And this patient certainly fits the T to that. One of the concerns I would have with that, at least that I think about, are, are potential drug interactions. And so, um, again, I am not an oncologist, but when I look at abiraterone, one of the concerns there is a potential drug interaction in that its effects could diminish the effects of the abiraterone, or at least it's uncertain because spironolactone can actually increase some of the androgen receptors. And that's something that uh, I don't think you want happening in this case. So I think maybe before you do that, oh, clarinone is, is, is another potential option, which might be a little bit safer. Um, from that standpoint, I don't know if there's great data on that. I think there's some other options that I would consider doing first. First and foremost, and, and we can talk about drugs, but one of the things I don't think that gets talked about enough is the effect of lifestyle intervention. I mean, if you look at this gentleman that, that you were talking about, um, obviously his diet isn't so great. He's very high sodium content from a dietary perspective, so fairly high sodium load. You know, looking at his weight also, He's 255 pounds, um, and unless he's a bodybuilder, that is 
that is probably not a healthy BMI and the effects of weight loss and dietary interventions can be extremely effective. Now, it's also one of the toughest things to do. Um, I think you mentioned his, his you know, serum potassium is a little bit low. Well, it's, it's, it's maybe on the lower end of, of normal there at 3.6, counseling on, you know, again, some of those dietary changes is if, if we're getting away from hopefully some of the so high sodium content and processed foods and also substituting in some foods that are rich in potassium, that can also be a potential mechanism to help with some of that blood pressure control. I don't think diet is going to get you there by itself. And, and lifestyle is, again, one of the hardest things, especially weight loss to do. But those are some of the first things I, I would really emphasize because you you can get um, significant blood pressure lowering effect with lifestyle interventions. Yeah, the potassium is a, a very nice thing to see because I, I'm just guessing a little bit that this patient's an, antihypertensive regimen and blood pressure control was better before abiraterone, and abiraterone has probably tipped them in the opposite direction. You don't usually see that low of potassium on the maximum dose of an ARB unless patients are sort of making extra aldosterone, which is often the underlying cause for resistant hypertension. So I would suspect some effect of that drug influencing his aldosterone and mineral corticoid effect in his body and, and raising his blood pressure. But as Eric said, I, I would I would only consider really spironolactone or a plerinone if I called the oncologist. This is this is the kind of patient where from a collaborative perspective, reaching out about a comorbidity and with the concern of not wanting to worsen the anti-cancer treatment, I think it'll be appropriate to communicate with the with the oncology provider to see if spironolactone or plerinone were safe options. But I, I'm sort of anticipating that maybe if it's unknown, we don't go there and exploring some other options. I don't like, as we have all said, the clonidine. Um, if we went away from that because of side effects, we probably would have to do a tapering regimen. So it wouldn't be a get off today because there may be a rebound hypertension effect that we don't want to worsen things. So we may have to plan for some scaling back of that through a titration that could be done within a couple of weeks. But I, I'm also an advocate of looking where there's opportunities to fully exploit the current drug regimen. Looking at the amlodipine, five milligrams, we know going up to 10 milligrams does just give you some more antihypertensive effect, but also in some patients, it can result in peripheral edema. So I don't know if that's an opportunity or something to consider. It may not do it all alone. That in addition to lifestyle modification may help out a bit, but that is one sort of low-hanging fruit that I would identify. So with this patient, one thing that I'm concerned about is that he's taking a lot of medications and that some of them may be adversely impacting his blood pressure or contributing to his dry mouth. Are there any medications you consider stopping other than quantity and just to reduce his pill burden? We've got some options here, I think, to maximize some of the regimen he's on and also maybe even simplify it. So we've got a patient who's on a RAS inhibitor, he's on a diuretic, and he's also on a calcium channel blocker. So why not put him on a triple combination drug, something like Olmosartan amlodipine hydrochlorothiazide or amlodipine valsartan hydrochlorothiazide? You could basically substitute out a fixed dose combination agent with one drug instead of the three. Um, and as Joe mentioned, you also got some room to move with the amlodipine up to 10 milligrams potentially. The other thing you could think about doing is, is an option though. You know, the data are, I'm not aware of great data, so at least had that great head to head data, but possibly I'm switching the metoprolol tartrate to something like carvedilol 
You might get some additional blood pressure lowering effect due to the alpha blockade with carbidolol. Again, that there's not a ton of head-to-head data for randomized controlled trials, but it is discussed, I think, in the resistant hypertension scientific statement that Joe was referring to. You got some got some other options that we could do first before going down the MRA avenue. I completely agree. And I think maybe at this point, you lay out multiple options and you share decision-making to actually determine the best approach. I do like considering alpha, beta block, or mixed one like carbetalol in this kind of person. You cannot increase the metoprolol because based on that heart rate, they're beta blocked. This patient would not want, you not in, want to increase that, but you may get a little extra kick from the carbetalol. Another thing that I've had some personal success for some of these difficult patients is switching from low sartan to a stronger ARB. I akin losartan to lovastatin and a drug like erbisartan or olmosartan akin to atorvastatin or rosuvastatin, where there are some limited data that those newer ARBs are a little bit stronger. This person is at 100 milligrams once daily of losartan, losartan, and I like to split dose it to 50 BID uh, when patients get to that higher dose because of the shorter half-life. But that's not a concern if you switch to olmosartan, which Eric has mentioned is available in some triple combinations. Even valsartan, I think, would be a little step up from losartan. So I, w- I would lay those out as potential switches that don't increase pill burden or maybe minimize it if you use a combination. One question that was asked before it, as another option that should be considered, and I think we maybe have to plan ahead and have more than one in our back pocket, would be I would prefer hydralazine over clonidine for a few reasons. I would like it more if this patient had kidney dysfunction, but I, I don't think that's an underlying problem for this person since it works especially well with them. But this patient is already on a beta blocker and a diuretic, which sort of is essential background therapy to mitigate some of the adverse effects that are associated with hydralazine. So if I have to pick something that's twice or even three times a day, I'd probably prefer hydralazine this person to clonidine. We don't necessarily like hydralazine. And so that's why it's further, at least in my opinion, it's further down on the list of the issue with hydralazine, of course, is you can get that reflex tachycardia because this is a pretty potent arterial vasodilator and you can get that reflex tachycardia. So being on a beta blocker, you're blocked from that standpoint and also can cause some significant sodium water retention. So being on a diuretic can help from that standpoint also. So being on these other agents can block some of those compensatory effects that you might otherwise see. The only issue I, w- I, w- I would think about with hydralazine is, and of course, headache is going to be your, your biggest side effect. And so sometimes tolerability can be an issue with hydralazine. So that's why I would probably put it down on a list. So again, something to keep in your back pocket down the road if you need to. And I guess one thing to just confirm is I do believe that we've not clearly stated it, but we are targeting a blood pressure of less than 130 over 80 in this person, which I think is a prudent choice because of the history, especially because of the history of a stroke. Yes, that is the goal. Tangentially a little bit, you know, he is taking some acetaminophen as needed for pain. I take it that's just over the counter. How much is he taking of that? It's just as needed. It's just included on the list just in case. Okay. The, the only reason I bring that up is it's been known for a long time that, yo, oh, acetaminophen is perfectly safe in patients with high blood pressure. But there has been some um, recent studies that looking at higher dose acetaminophen, particularly when you're getting up to like four grams per day, can have an increases in blood pressure, almost similar to NSAIDs if he was taking that much on a routine basis. Something you really wouldn't 
think about normally, but you know, I think a couple of Tylenols here and there isn't really going to make a big difference from a blood pressure standpoint, but that, that's kind of what I want to ask to maybe quantify that a little more. And his med list looks pretty clean. There's an indication for everything, except I don't see that he has allergic rhinitis. I'm assuming he has allergic rhinitis because he's on fluticasone, nasal spray, and also cetirizine. Cetirizine is much better than other antihistamines. In some patients might have some dry mouth or some a little bit of anticholinergic effects. So if it wasn't really needed, if he maybe the fluticasone nasal spray is covering his allergy symptoms to the point where he doesn't need cetirizine. That's the only one I really would identify. Otherwise, probably not touch the other non-antihypertensive medicines at this point. So just to kind of shift gears a little bit, this patient's fasting blood glucose today was 120 milligrams per deciliter, and his last A1C was 5.9%. So what would you do in response to this? And also, he is obese. Would you consider prescribing a GLP-1 receptor agonist or maybe an SGLT-2 inhibitor that might also have an effect on his blood pressure? You know, I personally probably wouldn't. I I would double down on lifestyle modifications. And this person is on, even though it's a lower dose, he's on prednisone and also abiraterone. I don't know how long that's going to be as part of his drug regimen. The prednisone is probably not having a very good effect on his glucose parameters. So personally, I probably would not start a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 inhibitor for that purpose. I would try to really exploit, as you've already identified, some of the lifestyle modifications. And heck, you know, I guess a lot of people like hot dogs, but maybe there's some lower sodium variety ones. I I agree with Joe on that. I would not consider starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT-2 inhibitor in addition to I think lack of indication per se at this point in time, uh, they're so expensive. I, I can't imagine insurance is going to cover these drugs without a formal FDA labeled indication for diabetes. Now, obesity, yes, some of the SGLT2 inhibitors do have that FDA labeled indication. We've had a hard time getting prior auths approved for a lot of our patients and cost is a huge issue. Following up on on the prednisone, I, I did notice that it, it said that he was supposed to be on prednisone for 360 days. I'm not sure where he's in at, at the course, but particularly if he's halfway or, or close to finishing his course with prednisone, uh, that would be good information to know as well, um, particularly when he goes off that. So you can follow up with additional blood pressure measurements um, as well as probably an updated campaign to kind of see where you're at. Well, Megan, Sabrina, Joe, Eric. I can't thank you enough for participating in today's podcast and walking us through this case. There's lots of lots of issues here. So I'm wondering what our listeners would do. There may be things after they read the case that they would consider doing differently. You can weigh in on this case by posting a comment on the iFormerX website. Only iFormerX members, however, can post comments and use the interactive features. So if you're not already a member... Sign up today. It's free to health professionals and students, residents, and fellows. And if you are a board-certified pharmacist, you can earn board recertification credit through the American Pharmacists Association. We partnered with APHA to produce their literature evaluation and evidence-based practice series. You can learn more about APHA's board prep and recertification program by clicking on the link that's posted just below the case study on our website. And lastly, before I sign off today, I want to extend a special thank you to Caitlin O'Brien 
at Boston Medical Center, who recently joined the iFormerX Advisory Board and has contributed to our mission in several ways over the past years. Caitlin is among the growing number of residency preceptors who are encouraging residents and students to join and contribute to iFormerX. So thank you, Caitlin. It's been great to work with you. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Thank you.